0: When it comes to Christmas time in your house, how many of you guys have certain Christmas traditions that you feel like you have to do or it doesn't feel like Christmas? Anybody? Anybody? Anybody afraid to raise your hand because of who you're sitting next to, maybe? (laughs) Um, Does any of it involve food? You have certain Christmas foods that you have to have or it doesn't feel like Christmas, like... Certain certain kinds of things covered in white chocolate, or certain kinds of sausage balls, or certain kinds of you know cinnamon apple cidery drink type deals, or certain kinds of Christmas movies you've got to have. You you know if you don't watch Charlie Brown, it's not Christmas. Kind of a thing, or um, Miracle on 34th Street, or It's a Wonderful Life, or uh, certain kinds of Christmas songs. If you don't hear "Joy to the World" or "Go Tell It on the Mountain." Or Silent Night that we just sang, it's not, it didn't feel like Christmas. Something is wrong in the world. You know, you have certain things that you have to do. Or maybe there's a certain book you read every night leading up to Christmas as your family, and you always did that. Um, Or maybe on Christmas Eve, you open one present ahead of time, and it's always pajamas. Pajamas. You know or, or you know or there's different things like that that it this is this is the way Christmas works this it just is this is what we have. this is the same breakfast we have every single year on Christmas. If we don't, it's not Christmas you know and if somebody in the family is not trying to pick up all the wrapping paper on Christmas morning so that it's not crazy, then it's just something's weird and off and not right you know Well, we have a variety of traditions in our house uh, things that we do. Um, in the lead up to Christmas, we, we do read every night a, a little devotional book we read beginning December 1st, leading up to Christmas. We've done that for a number of years, same book. Um, you know, we get our Christmas tree, have it all set up, and uh, we have Christmas Eve, we always eat fettuccine at night, our, our Christmas Eve meal. Uh, we have a birthday cake for Jesus for breakfast on Christmas Day. Um, Katie does both of those, and they're way better than what I would do, so, but... Um, and about something that else that we do that we started a number of years ago, Katie was reading an article and came across this idea, and it was a phenomenal idea, and we took it and ran with it. Um, I guess, who has more than one nativity set set up at their house? Okay, thank you. Uh, well, at some point, I think we had a little Playmobil nativity set, you know, the little preschool Legos. Um, but they've all disappeared except for the wise men and the camel. Uh, i mean mary joseph the shepherds the sheep even baby jesus i don't know where any of them are but we have the wise men and we have the camel and so in this article what katie read was what uh, you know a good thing to do is you could move the wise men every day around the house as though they're looking for jesus and then come christmas morning the wise men are at the nativity set where jesus is they found him uh, and so we started this. And so the wise men, these little Playmobil wise men, move around that house in variety of places. And the kids look for them every single day. Uh, sometimes they're easier to find than others. Um, you know, when you've lived in the same house for a number of years, there's only so many places you can hide them. And there's some repeats. Uh, you hide them, like, on top of the fan or in the Christmas tree or in the stockings or in their rooms or in a closet. This morning they were in the... Um, fridge um they've been in the oven before but you got to pull them out before you cook something uh you got to remember that one Uh, maybe that's how we lost the rest of the nativity set i don't know but they move around the house looking the ideas they're looking for for jesus and we have one main nativity set it's it's uh up on next to the tv and that's where they end up on christmas morning is they will find baby jesus Uh, And so what we're going to look at today is actually the visit of the wise men uh, on their journey to find Jesus. In Matthew chapter 2, it's where we're going to be. It's going to be on the screens. Uh, You can use a Bible there on the rack if you would like. It's on page 807, uh, the first page of the New Testament, page 807. And again, if you don't have a Bible, take that Bible that's on the rack. Take it home. It's yours. You can have it. We've got some others we can replace that one with. Just take that one home. Uh, But we'll be in Matthew chapter 2 today. We've been looking at the coming of Jesus. You know, we we talked about the angel coming to Mary. We talked about the angel coming to Joseph, letting them know that Jesus was going to be born, and their reactions and their experience with that. Uh, Well, there was also some people who were in the midst of preparing and getting ready for the coming of Jesus, as we're going to see here in just a second. And they were called the wise men, as it says here, Matthew chapter two, starting in verse one. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now he says, Herod the king. This Herod was—he was. His name in history is Herod the Great. That I don't. Maybe he gave himself his own name, Herod the Great, and uh, he was a very severe man. Um, he killed a whole lot of people in his time. Uh, But we also know from history that Herod the Great died in the year 4 B.C. So sometime before 4 B.C., a year or two years before that, 5, 6 B.C., most likely, probably, Jesus was born right in there. And so Herod is there, and he's in Jerusalem. And these guys show up, these wise men. Or in in the Greek, the original word for it is magi. You ever heard them called magi before? These magi. Uh, It doesn't say how many there were, it just says some came. Uh, But the interesting thing about that word magi is this is not the first time that that word shows up in scripture, even though this is the first page of the New Testament. That word magi is from the Old Testament, actually, the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel, the prophet, gets promoted to a uh, a position in the Babylonian kingdom, and his, his title was Chief Magi. He gets promoted to that position, chief magi. And what's interesting about that is he was in charge of all the magi that were there, the studiers of the sky, guys who did things for the government, um, resources for the government, is later on in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, Daniel, chief magi, again, receives a prophecy from God about the coming Messiah, about the time that the coming Messiah would show up. So chief magi, Daniel, gets a prophecy about the timing of the coming of the Son of God. And here we have magi showing up, looking for the Son of God, centuries later. Some scholars believe, possibly, Daniel, as the chief magi, taught this prophecy to his other magi that were under him. And they passed this on for generations down to these guys who, when this star appeared, they were looking for it. They were ready for it, because they'd been taught this for generations. And when it showed up, they got all kinds of excited in preparation for what this actually meant, because of the original prophecy Daniel had received. And so however it it was, they show up to Jerusalem. They don't know the exact place they're going yet. They just know there's a star, it's over Israel, let's go to Israel. They show up to Israel, they go to the capital city, it's Jerusalem. They come into Jerusalem with... You know, We believe an entourage making a big uproar, everybody notices, it's a huge deal, these people come in town, and they were saying this around town, verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. That's actually another prophecy by another prophet, a guy named Balaam, who wasn't always the best kind of person, in Numbers chapter 24, he made a prophecy about the Son of God coming. As a star, and a star that was rising, their exact wording that they use in that verse. So these guys, however they are, magi, just as Daniel was, coming when Jesus was young, uh, quoting from a prophecy from the book of Numbers. Uh, They're not Jews, as far as we can tell, but they are familiar with Jewish scripture, having studied it, most likely, in anticipation of this moment. And so they're asking around town, where is the king of the Jews who's just been born? Well, this stirs the town up. Verse three, when Herod the king heard this. Now remember, they've just been asking, where is the new king? And so Matthew is very pointed to write in that next verse when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, this, for anyone who knows history, hearing that Herod the great is troubled, would cause some things to come into your mind. Because Herod the Great was an extremely paranoid man. Like, you may hear that, but you don't understand. He's extremely paranoid. Like killing some of his wives because he was afraid of what they were gonna do. Killing some of his children because he was afraid of what they might do. Killing his advisors because he was afraid of what they might do. In addition to killing everybody else that he was afraid were coming after him. So he's extremely paranoid that's not even rumors he might be hearing just, just from stuff that pops into his head because of a dream. You ever wake up mad at somebody because you dreamed they did something, but they didn't really do it in real life, but did, they did it in your dream? Well, Herod would wake up thinking that and kill him. It's that kind of guy. And so now he hit, that's who he is. And he hears people around town asking, so where's the new king? And so this is stirring stuff up in Herod. Violent, angry Herod. And so it says he's troubled. There's a little more to it than that. He's, he's worried. He's confused. All of a sudden, that paranoia explodes in the back of his mind, and he's conspiring. Okay, well, how can I find him, and how can I kill him? Verse 4. Uh, so this is what Herod did. He, assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So he starts asking around. He brings in all the guys who should know, the chief priests, the leaders of the Jewish uh, uh, religion, and the scribes, these are guys originally whose ju- who their only job was to copy Scripture. But it grew from that, and so they were supposed to be the leading scholars on Scripture. So he calls those guys in, the smartest Bible guys. He calls in the religious leaders, and he says, okay, you guys, in the know, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? Where's the king of the Jews supposed to be born? Tell me right now where he is. Herod's thinking, I'm going to send the army, and I'm just going to wipe the thing off the face of the earth. You tell me where he is. This is what they say. Verse 5. Uh, verse 6. Uh, oh, no, verse 5. So they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So again, another prophecy. So we've had a prophecy from Daniel, prophecy from the book of Numbers, now a prophecy. This is the prophet Micah <coughs> uh, who prophesied that the Messiah, the Son of God, was going to come in Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem is only a few miles, a handful of miles away from Jerusalem, where they're sitting at this moment. These chief priests and scribes should have been all excited. They should have jumped on the quickest donkey and gone over to Bethlehem. It's just, you know, four, five, six miles down the road. None of them left town. So Herod hears this information. Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. And so now he's thinking, okay, Bethlehem, just right over there, i guess i really can't i'm not supposed to wipe out the whole city well how can i get in there and and make sure that this new king is killed look at what he does verse seven then herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared and so in herod's reckoning the star showed up when the child was born which as far as we can tell, that may be what happened. He ends up, later on in the passage, he, he uh, sends people down to Bethlehem to kill every baby boy under the age of two. So that's why we believe at this point Jesus was two years old there in Bethlehem. Does every baby boy under two, because the wise men probably said, the magi probably said, the star appeared two years ago. And so he sends this army out there later on in the chapter, and they do that. And so he, he questions them about when the star appeared. And then he said, once they tell him, this is what he says in verse 8. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So this, Now, the way I, you know, if you've never heard this story before, the way I'm reading it, you can kind of intimate what Herod is thinking. Um, but if you had read the story, you know Herod, again, he's not a good guy. He's going to kill all the babies, baby boys in Bethlehem. Uh, but what he's telling the wise men, the magi, is, all right, you go find him, and then you send one of your little errand boys back to me and tell me where he is, because I just I just want to come, and I want to, to kneel down. I just want to worship him so much. All the while, he's already sent word to have his guys start sharpening their swords. And Herod's just not being completely honest with these guys, and almost using worship of God as a cover for his um, less than honorable intentions. Verse 9, but the wise men didn't know any better. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now, we've heard the Christmas story, we've heard about this moving star in the sky, and I read all kinds of opinions uh, and guesstimations about how this is possible. Star in the sky that moves in this way. It obviously has to move in a way that none of the other stars move because how else would they recognize it uh, as, as unique? Uh, possibly some guys I read this week think this was an angel put in the sky. Could be. Uh, could be a, 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 a special star God created just for this moment. Very well could be. We just know that it was supernatural, whatever it was. And however it was, it was moving in such a unique way that not only did they know it came to, to rest over the nation of Israel, it somehow moved from where it was when they were in Jerusalem. It shifted in the sky just enough so they knew, okay, I need to move that way. It's in Bethlehem. They, they, they hear from Herod, Bethlehem. Uh, maybe they were you know, listening outside in the hallway, but they see the star move in the sky, and so they head over to Bethlehem. And it says it came to rest over a certain house. Um, Somehow they were able to recognize that as well. But that's also how we know Mary and Joseph and Jesus have been in town for a little while. You know, they're not in the stable anymore. They're not in an inn. They've been there long enough. We believe Jesus was a couple years old. Two years that they've either bought or rented a house there in Bethlehem for this period of time. And uh, they're raising Jesus there right now. Later on they're going to leave, but... Uh, so they go, and the, the Magi uh, see where the star rests. Uh, see where it comes to rest. Now, again, the Magi, they came to Jesus. For them, no matter how long it took, whether it took centuries, if it really was handed down by Daniel way back in the day, anticipating this exact moment, or maybe they have been in preparation and traveling for a period of two years. And they get here to this moment they make it past herod and his inquisition and they get here no matter how long it took no matter the obstacles they had to face in the in-between time they still came to jesus and that's a principle all of us can take to keep coming to jesus no matter what we face no matter how hard it gets no matter how tired we are no, no matter how much life doesn't make sense, and I guarantee you, you live long enough, it's not going to make sense at some point, to keep coming to Jesus. These guys came. These guys came from a faraway country. These guys traveled, it's estimated, over 1,000 miles walking and on camels. You ever rode a camel for a 1,000 miles? I would imagine it's not very comfortable, not very pleasant. But they traveled over 1,000 miles to get here, anticipating this moment for a very long time. And they kept coming. They, they, they got to Herod, one of the most, you know, <laughs> egregiously violent and bitter and unqualified kings in the history of the world. And they made it past him because it was God's purpose for them to. And they get down and they kept going and they get to Bethlehem, they kept coming to Jesus. They would not allow themselves to be distracted or sidetracked from anything to keep them from their main objective of coming to Jesus. And they show up, they see the star come over the house, and there they are seeing the house where the Son of God is. Look at verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Again, that's a famous verse, a verse many of us have heard before when it comes to Christmas. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. But you gotta to understand, too, the way that's phrased. Rejoiced and joy come from the same word, exceedingly and great. This is excessive. This is over and abundance. This is massive. This is huge. Even just one of those words would mean a massive and huge reaction. But to have all four of that, rejoiced, exceedingly, with great, joy, compiled into one phrase, this is a display that embarrasses anybody who watches it. You ever see somebody react in a certain way that's really, really happy, and you're kind of embarrassed to look, but you can't look away? Maybe at Christmas time. <laughs> See somebody react in a certain way? You see him react and, and we, <laughs> he's not here today. They had something else to be at. But uh, We had a member of our church who had a video go viral a few years ago as a Chicago Cubs fan. He, when they won the World Series, leaping off the couch, squatting, and doing this really fast clap. Somebody, you need to go look up the squat clap. And Jonathan Lindsay... Uh, And you will find it. It's a phenomenal video. Uh, (laughs) I think it made it to ESPN one time. Uh, But that's exceedingly great joy in a moment of something he never thought he would see. And here these wise men, these magi, are experiencing something they never thought they would see. Maybe one of them busted out a squat clap. And Jonathan was just replicating something that happened 2,000 years ago. However they displayed what they were displaying... The way Matthew describes it is rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. I mean, this is just excessive display in the middle of the road. I mean, they're coming up. I mean, maybe it's a cul-de-sac, wherever. They're coming up on Mary and Joseph and Jesus' house, and they're right out front, and they're just going crazy. You ever had somebody go crazy right out in front of your house? You just kind of peek out the blinds. What in the world is going... You're texting people, you see this outside? These crazy people. Well, these guys are, I mean, they're dressed however they're dressed, bringing the gifts they're bringing with a huge entourage, most likely. And they're out there just rejoicing exceedingly in the street, walking up to their house. Who knows how long that rejoicing went on for? Maybe it was a while. However, long, maybe one of them finally said, I think we need to go inside. <laughs> and uh, they got up and they went to the house. Verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary and his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. So they walk in the house. Maybe Joseph answered the door. Maybe Joseph went to first century Walmart. I don't know. But they they walk in the house, and there's Mary, and there's Jesus, and they just fall down before him. They, they, They can't contain themselves. I mean, they were just displaying great joy outside and now seeing Jesus. These men from so far away, these men who were not Jews, fall down and worship him. Some of the first recorded worship of Jesus we have in Scripture are people who weren't Jews. He came for the world, not just one particular people. And they fall down there in the living room or the kitchen or wherever it was. Maybe it was just one big room. But they fall down, all of them and they worship Jesus. And they take a break from their worship, and they worship through giving. And the rest of that verse, they opened their treasures, and they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, which I'm sure all of you have lying around your house. Well, what's interesting about that is these gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, the things they brought, these gifts weren't just random things that these magi had lying around their house. You know, it's not like you forget about somebody's birthday and you go to the birthday drawer or the card drawer and you pull out one card that is just generic that you forgot about this person's birthday. So you pull out a card that just says congratulations and you write stuff in it just because you forgot. It's not like that. This, this had to have taken some phenomenal planning. You know, they offered gifts. Probably they had reserved for this exact moment. Maybe these had been passed down. These gifts had been prepared for generations for this moment getting ready for this, for this exact time. These these magi, they're offering something special, they're offering something valuable, they're offering something that recognizes Jesus as king. You see, you can build in all kinds of symbolism into what these gifts are, and what they could be used for, and they have been used for a variety of things throughout history. Um, Myrrh, for instance, is also used uh, in coordination with Jesus' crucifixion and his burial. But, the, all three of these, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, in, particularly in Scripture, are used for one thing more than anything else. And I'll give you some Scriptures here in a minute uh, if you want to write them down. But um, it's used as recognition of royalty. All three of them, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's from Psalm 72, 15. Psalm 45, 8. Isaiah 60, verse 6. Song of Solomon 3, verse 6. 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 2. These things are used more than any other way they're used in Scripture to recognize royalty. And so these magi show up, bringing gifts, recognizing royalty. They, they display in the street rejoicing. They come in the house, they fall down in worship. Then they open their gifts that they brought, gifts that were intentional, gifts that were on purpose, gifts that required great forethought. They had to think about this. Have you ever given somebody a gift, maybe for Christmas, and, and you had planned it and researched and worked on it for months? Hopefully they gave you the reaction worthy of the time invested. Uh, but you, you had worked on it, and, and you wrapped it up, and you gave it, uh, knowing they had no idea they were going to receive this thing. And so these guys had prepared and planned and, and, and put all kinds of thought into this, that these, these gifts weren't thrown together at the last second. They had worked up to this, and they offered Jesus these things, gold and frankincense and myrrh, because what we can see in the life of the wise men is that offering something to Jesus really requires three things from the life of the wise men. Offering something to Jesus requires, first off, perseverance. They persevered. They traveled all that way. They got to where they were going. They did not allow anything to distract them. They kept their eyes on the destination. Maybe some of their guys got tired. Maybe they were ready to go home. Maybe they were kept asking, are we there yet? No, the star is still moving. We've got to keep, keep going. Who knows what went on during that journey? Maybe a lot more set out than showed up. But these guys who got there persevered and went the way they needed to go. You know, a few weeks ago, actually it was just a week ago. It's been a long week. Uh, we went down to my parents' house in Pasadena, Texas, right outside of Houston. You might know where Pasadena is. Wow, I am very impressed. Um, well, we, they live in Pasadena, and, and they've lived there almost 30 years. Um, uh, but we, my dad is a music minister at a church down there, and they do this huge Christmas program. And last year, they didn't do it um, because a lot of things weren't done in 2020. Uh, but they were doing it again this year, and so we went down there, and I, t- I think I told a story a few weeks ago about traveling down there in the past. It's been an adventure. Uh, but we made it uh, down there uh, with, uh, it was an uneventful trip down there, and uh, we, we, when we got into town, I had the little map pulled up on my phone. Um, I had tried, you know, looked at a variety of map apps. You always try to see which one's the best and going to get you there the quickest, and all this deal. Well, I had one pulled up on my phone and we were getting close to Houston and it was telling me to go this one way. And uh, the kids just asked me, when are we going to get there? And I said, I guess it was a week ago, this past Thursday. Uh, I said, we're going to get there about 4 p.m. We're going to get to about 4. Um, but the map was saying to go this other way. I said, well, it's telling me, I looked at Katie, I said, the map's telling me to go the wrong way. I said, we're not going to follow the map. And so I got off and, and we turned on Beltway 8 to go around. The map was trying to take me down to 610, right near downtown, and with a car full of people and who knows what's happening downtown Houston, I said, "I'm not taking y'all downtown. <laughs> this is going to be horrible." And so we turn off, and uh, it kept trying to reroute me. Usually, when you take a turn because you think you know better than the map, it reroutes you and goes the way that you're going. Well, the map wasn't doing that. It was trying to get me to go back the whole time, and then it tried to get me to go on I-10 and try to get me to go this other way. And stop, map. I had Katie look at it to see maybe we had tolls marked off on this deal and said, we just can't figure it out. I'm just going to go. I know where I'm going. We're in Houston. I was raised in Houston. I learned to drive in Houston. I know where I'm going. And so we're going down the Beltway. And uh, if you don't know much about Houston, the Beltway, the way Houston is, is downtown Houston's right, you know, in the middle of Houston. Uh, It's huge and massive and congested and terrible. Uh, Around that is a highway called 610. And then outside of that is another toll road that goes around the whole city. That's called the Beltway. And so we were going to the Beltway, and there's a ship channel, a huge ship channel that comes in near Houston, and both 610 and the Beltway go over the ship channel. And I was gonna go over the Beltway Bridge, because Pasadena, my parents live just right across that. And, and you get over the bridge, boom, there's Pasadena. <coughs> and the map, for some reason, was saying, don't go that way. It would not go over the bridge. I mean, the, even as we were getting close to the bridge and about to go up, uh, and it's a huge, if you've never been there, it's massive. Tall. It's only four lanes, but I mean, it's something like 200 feet high. It's really, really high. The first time Katie and I went together and I had her drive across it, we had to stop and and then we had to swap so that I could drive because it it is scary if you've never done it before. Um, And so we went over that, and even when we were on the bridge, the map would not put the line on the bridge, but I knew where we were going. And the map, when we turned off from going where it was telling me to go, the estimated time of arrival, and if you've ever driven with the map up there with the ETA on there, you're always trying to beat the ETA, right? And you feel better about yourself when it drops down. I gained a minute. <laughs> yeah, buddy. And um, when you make a stop at a gas station, we only lost two minutes. We're good. We're all good. And you're passing people that you already passed. Like, eh, eh, eh. And anyway, the map had moved. And so I had told the kids, we're going to get there at about 4. And the map said, I remembered it this morning, 4.18. Uh, even going over the bridge still said that. Well, when we got over the other side of the bridge, it finally showed the line again. It's like, it, it's like the bridge didn't exist. I could see it on the map, but it's like in the, the, the driving directions it didn't exist. And then it said, I don't know if the kids remember, it said 403. 402, Caleb says. He remembers, he's got a better memory. 402. I said, See? 402. And then Katie looked at the kids and said, Dad, Daddy was pretty right. He's pretty close. I said, Well, I, I knew where I was going. Even though the map was telling me, trying to distract me, make me go somewhere else that would cause a problem, I knew where I was going and I kept going to my destination even though the map said something else. I started doubting myself actually as we were driving. Maybe the bridge is out. We hadn't been to Houston in two years. Maybe something happened. Uh, maybe it's you know, gone. No, I can't re- imagine it's gone. I see cars coming. I'm, and so I'm, I'm not saying this in the car. But I'm thinking it in my mind. There's still cars coming, so I guess the bridge has to be there, unless, you know, all these thousands of cars are getting on right before. Uh, And so we made it safe and sound and got there, and Dad's program was phenomenal. And Came home. It took a little bit longer to come home than uh, to go, but we had a good time anyway. Uh, But I, I knew where my destination was, and I knew how to get there, even though I had something outside voices, technology, telling me to do something else, telling me to go a different route. How many of us me included, often, daily, get distracted from our spiritual destination because of outside voices or because of technology, distracting us from where we need to be having our eyes fixed on Jesus. See, these wise men, these magi, persevered. They, they, they had great follow-through in what they had set out to accomplish. So they offered to Jesus. Offering to Jesus requires perseverance. Offering to Jesus also requires planning. It also requires planning. Offering something to Jesus can't just be the default thing. It can't, it's not meant to be muscle memory. It's not meant to be rote. It, it, it's meant to be purposeful. It's meant to be intentional. It's meant to be worship. Offering fina- financially in the, in the offering basket back there, offering parts of your life meant to be on purpose. It's not meant to be, well, if I wake up in time tomorrow, then I'll read my Bible. No, it's meant to be intentional and purposeful. I'm going to make time. I'm going to do it. I remember Martin Luther, there may have been John Calvin. No, or may have been John Wesley. No, it was Martin Luther. Uh, he was asked one time, no, he was, it was John Wesley, I know it was. Uh, he had an especially busy day the next day. Like twice as much stuff that needed to get done. He had meetings, he had to go over here and do this, this camp meeting, go over here and preach over here. And uh, he wasn't going to have a whole lot of time because it, it, the day started extra early that day. And they said, okay, Mr. Wesley, we're going to come to your house at such and such time. Um, I know you usually wake up, you know, right about then to have your time with the Lord, uh, but we, get, we got to get going. And uh, They showed up at his house the next morning, and Wesley had already been up for an extra three hours that morning. And he said, I, I needed twice as much time with the Lord today because of what we have in front of us. If we have twice as much stuff to do, I need twice as much time to be prepared. That he was going to plan for his day ahead of time and get up extra early because he knew that time with the Lord was precious and valuable. Offering to Jesus requires planning. It requires planning. Intentionality behind it. You know, you, you're as a parent, you're not going to set your kids on the path of life by accident. It takes planning. It takes intentionality. Sometimes God will do it in spite of you, as he often does with us. But it takes purpose-filled planning. My wife is great at that. But offering to Jesus requires planning. Offering to Jesus requires perseverance, planning. Offering to Jesus finally requires purpose. It requires purpose. These guys... They came to Jesus with a great purpose in recognizing his royalty. It wasn't an afterthought, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They offered this to Jesus because of the purpose that was behind it. It recognized his royalty. For them offering it, they're recognizing in their own hearts. Here is the king of eternity. It's recognition for Mary and Joseph, seeing the gifts that are there. And anybody who reads this and sees the story, it's recognition he is the king. The one true king, not Herod. They didn't give any gifts to Herod. They didn't bring anything for Herod, which was customary. We know in history, the Magi actually came to visit kings of different nations, and they would bring gifts. They didn't bring any gifts for Herod. They brought the gifts for the one true king and laid it at his feet, even as a baby, two-year-old, laid their gifts there, offering with purpose. So the Magi's the Magi they offered to Jesus with perseverance, planning, and purpose, and their purpose recognizing Jesus' royalty. What are you offering to Jesus in your life? Is it with great perseverance, with great planning, and great purpose? Honestly, with my own life, it's not always that. Sometimes it's what's whatever's left over in my mind and my exhaustion it should be filled with perseverance, planning, and purpose. For them, recognition of Jesus' royalty. Today, we're going to do something in just a moment, Lord's Supper, and recognize Jesus in our lives, what he has done for us, how he has brought us to where we are. Um, And so we're going to recognize him here now. But as we do, ask yourself that same question. What am I offering to Jesus in my life? And is it filled with perseverance, planning, and purpose? Or do I start offering something to Jesus, but then give up because it's too hard? It's too much, too difficult. Or the planning requires too much time and investment. Or the purpose gets lost in the repetition. Instead of remembering and having a, a, setting a reminder in our own spirit of needing to be recalibrated to offer to Jesus. Whatever he would have us offer him in perseverance in planning and in purpose and so right now we're going to take a moment and we're going to recognize jesus offer our heart's attention and our and our mind's attention and our heart's affection in this moment as we take the lord's supper so if you did not get one of these little cups uh, we have some up here at the front we have some in the back uh if you can't get up and get one raise your hand and we've got deacons who will come and bring them to you um But we have them, it has the juice and the cracker all in one little container there. Uh, So if you don't have one, raise your hand and we'll we'll make sure we get you one. Um, But here's what the Lord's Supper is. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper uh, the night before he was crucified. He did the Passover meal, but he brought new symbolism to the elements of the Passover meal. Uh, And he said that the thing that they were eating represented his body. His body being broken, his body dying, being sacrificed so that salvation could be had. And then he said the thing they were drinking, it represented the covenant, the promise of eternal life, of their sins being forgiven forever. And the thing about a covenant, the thing about a covenant promise, especially in history but in Scripture, is it requires blood being spilt in some capacity. And so that's why the thing that we drink represents his blood is because his blood had to be spilt for the covenant to be secured. And so the Lord's Supper is that. We eat something and we drink something representative of what he did for us in dying and in raising. Buying our salvation because we can't do it on our own. We need him to do it for us. And so Paul wrote about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul wrote, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And in truth, that's why he came at Christmas, was to die. He came to die. That was his purpose the whole time, to die and raise from the dead. And Paul says there in that verse, you proclaim the Lord's death in taking the Lord's Supper. Whenever we take the Lord's Supper with, with whatever we eat, here today it's a cracker or, and, and juice is what we're going to drink, it declares the gospel because of what it represents. Jesus dying, Jesus raising, the covenant being secured for our salvation. And so it's a declaration of the gospel. And so, But as we do this, as we eat it and drink it, we need to be honoring him in it. You see, when Paul's writing 1 Corinthians 11, the the, the passage that comes before this, the Corinthians were taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. They were dishonoring each other, dishonoring the Lord, dishonoring the gospel in how they took it because they didn't recognize the Lord in it. They saw it as a ritual almost, not as an observance. They saw it as something that they could check the box and make them feel good about what they did rather than an, an act of worship. And Paul's saying, you guys got it all wrong. You guys got it all wrong. It's about us offering ourselves to the Lord in in appreciation and in thankfulness, gratitude, in love because of his death and resurrection. And so he says, when you take it, you're proclaiming the gospel. And so when you take it in an unworthy manner, in a disrespectful way to the Lord, in a disrespectful way to other believers, you're dishonoring the gospel. Jesus coming and dying and raising. And so look at what he says next. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, the reason behind why, and he's talking about the reason behind why we observe the Lord's Supper, without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Says, That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Because you are dishonoring the gospel in practice and in life. Dishonoring the gospel. You see, but the dishonor is not against the cracker and the juice, the dishonor is against the gospel. And the Lord's Supper matters because the gospel it represents matters. And, and the gospel matters. That's why the warning is so severe, because the gospel matters. And the gospel matters because your life matters. Jesus came and died so you could live. He valued your life that much. However we end up living, whether we honor him in our lives or not, he's giving us the option. He came and died because your life matters. Your life matters to him. And so he died for you to live. And so we, we, we take the Lord's Supper as a remembrance, as a recognition of the greatness of God and the love of God and his covenant promise of salvation. And so now what we're going to do is we're going to take the Lord's Supper. But if you don't know Jesus, this is your moment. You see, you can eat this and you can drink this and, and not know Jesus and it won't be anything to you. I mean, it will be, you know a little cracker and a little grape juice and you won't feel any different because you don't know Jesus. It doesn't represent anything to you. But to know Jesus and and take this, this act of worship, this demonstration of the gospel can have extreme power in, in a realignment of who we are. Not because the juice is special or because the cracker is special, but because of where our attention should be on Jesus. It's an act of worship. And so right now, if you don't know Jesus, this is the time to know Jesus. Believe that he is God's son, that he came and died so that all your sins would be forgiven, even ones you haven't done yet. He came and died so all your sins of your entire life would be forgiven. And then he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. And if you believe that now for the first time, not just head knowledge, not just listening to Linus on Charlie Brown, but you actually believe it right now, then you can take the Lord's Supper for the first time and have it truly mean something to you. So will you believe? Even if you're watching online, believe right now and then go to your fridge and get something to drink and something to eat and take the Lord's Supper with us. This is a holy moment. So if you believed in Jesus now for the first time, in just a minute, after we conclude this, and I want to talk to you, do not leave the room without talking to me. I want to talk to you about it and celebrate with you. And hey, you know what? If you believe for the first time, how about you get baptized on Christmas Eve? Man, what a day that would be. Celebration, opportunity, that would be. Let's take care of it right here and now. And so what we're going to do is, does anybody not have one? Again, this is your time. Does anybody not have one of these? Any follower of Jesus in the room. You don't have to be a member of the church to have one. You don't have to be a member of the church to take one. Scripture doesn't say that. It just says believe in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, does everybody have one of these? All righty. Well, what I want you to do is we're, uh, I'm going to read the Scripture in just a sec. Go ahead and get ready. It's got two little tabs on it, okay? Go ahead, the, the top tab is kind of a little film. It opens this little compartment for the cracker part. Why don't you go and peel that back and get ready. As Stephanie comes, she's going to play us something. Take the little film out there off. See, the night before Jesus died, he gathered all of his disciples together to take the Lord's Supper. They were just thought they were celebrating the Passover meal. Remembering something God did for the Israelites, bringing them out of Egypt. But Jesus took it and gave it this new meaning. The purpose behind him coming at Christmas. And In the book of Luke, Luke writes, He took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So now what I want you to do is with me, Along with what Jesus said, he said, he broke the bread, and then he passed it out. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So what we do is we take the element that we eat, and we break it, just as he said, just eat it with the the bread. You break it. His body that was broken in death, and we break it, and then we eat it in remembrance of what he did for us. So we're going to break it, we're going to eat it, and then I'm going to pray for us. Here we go. God we thank you for coming we thank you for submitting yourself to your creation to be beaten to be mocked to be crucified to have your body broken in death for us God we praise you for doing something for us that we could not do for ourselves You dying in our place, paying for all of our sins that we could not, so that our salvation would be secure. God, we thank you. We we, we praise you. We worship you. God, give us the strength to not only take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner but live lives honoring the gospel at every opportunity and juncture and turn. God, we thank you. In your name I pray, amen. Now peel off the second little tab there. Open your juice. remember what I said about a covenant covenant required blood and Jesus in doing the Lord's Supper with his disciples he was a mere hours away from being beaten beyond recognition and knowing that it's coming anticipating that moment and he was taking time with his disciples to explain this they didn't understand it right then they would later on but then he took the cup and likewise the cup after they had eaten He said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And then he passed it around, and they all drank. So let's, we're going to drink this together, and then I'm going to pray for us. As a remembrance of our new covenant in Christ, let's drink. God, we thank you. We thank you for the covenant. An unbreakable covenant. covenant that's one-sided. A covenant that depends on you and not us. Granting us salvation. Granting us eternity. God, we thank you for your spilt blood. We thank you that you paid the price because we couldn't. You brought justice upon Yourself that was deserving of us. God, we thank You that we can know eternity because of that covenant. God, help us to do and say and live in every possible way we can so that every person possible within our circle of influence can experience that same covenant of salvation that we have through your death and resurrection. God, we thank you so much. We thank you that you came and died and rose Thank you for guys like these wise men, these magi who persevered, who offered gifts with great planning and purpose. Help us to step out into what we offer you with great perseverance and planning and purpose. Because you died so we can live. God, we thank you so much. In your name I pray. Amen.